Hi, this is Tom McGee, and you're listening to Walk Left, the podcast. And I'm Marty Chidorek. Thanks for joining us. This episode is a preview for a fringe kids show. However, it contains language that may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So this is the third consecutive fringe kids that's going to have an offering from Shaky Shake and Friends. Uh, I'd love to talk to you before we start talking about A Midsummer Night's Dream, a puppet epic. Yes, indeed. Tell me a bit more about the company. The uh, story goes that back at Queens, we had a teacher named Chick Reed, who was a wonderful, wonderful actress. And uh, she always referred to Shakespeare as Shaky Shake, which we all thought was hilarious. So my partner, Megan Miles, who's the other founder of the company, and I were in New York. And in FAO Schwartz in New York, we walked in, we saw this banner that said, build your own Muppet, which we thought was bullshit, because surely nowhere in the world would be good enough to let us build our own Muppet. <laughs> but in fact, since Henson was bought by Disney, they actually had a build your own Muppet workshop. So we went and constructed some Muppets. I made Shaky Shake, who is Shakespeare in a smoking jacket, and uh, Megan made her weird kind of masky avatar named Zip, and... Uh, I was really worried that my dad, because I was visiting with my parents, was going to hate having to import these fucking puppets back across the border. So we showed back up with these Muppets, and he's like, oh, these are great. Look at all the things you can do with these You need two more if you're going to do a show. And we're like, game on. <laughs> so we went back to F.A.O. Schwartz the next day, and the guy, it was the same guy. Uh, and literally, you uh, you get a, a laminated mat of a blank puppet body. You can add clothes and eyes and nose and features and such. And so we go back, and it's the same guy whose job after you do that is to just glue gun it on. And they're very embarrassed with us. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to build your Muppet. And you watch them, they're just glue gunning things to other things. And um, he's like, listen, guys, I'm really sorry. We broke even last night. So your pups are cheaper today. I'm really sorry I had to charge you full price yesterday. You guys basically put us over the edge. And I was like, that's fine, man. Give me cheap puppets. So came back across customs with a box full of Muppets. And uh, <laughs> we were the last people crossing this one person's booth. And she's like, got anything to declare? She's basically Roz from um, Monsters, Inc. Just this, like, sad, angry woman. And she's like, anything to declare? And uh, my gruff dad is kind of like, oh, uh, we've got a, a box of puppets. And my very helpful mother pops on her shoulder and like, Muppet puppets! And if she could have shot daggers out of her eyes into our very <laughs> souls, she would have. Anyway, so we brought these things back. And the conceit for buying all of them was that we were going to do a friend show. And... I had that in the back of my head. I was just really excited to have a Muppet. So I didn't really care. But then the Fringe deadline came around. So we put in for Fringe Kids, and we got it. And then suddenly I was like, well, shit, I guess we got to write a show. So uh, those were our humble beginnings. Our whole deal is that I know a ton of people, I'm sure you do too, Marty, who hate Shakespeare. And for me, that experience was Catcher in the Rye. And in high school, a teacher was like, we're going to read Catcher in the Rye. We're going to follow Holden Caulfield down the map of New York. I was like, I hate this guy. He's a douchebag. I just hate this book. <laughs> Everything about this reading rages me. We got to university. A friend of mine was like, this was the formative book of my education. Like, I, I'm a better person because of this book. And it's because he'd come to it on his own terms. And I feel like with Shakespeare, that's something that we lose a lot of the time. Growing up, I was lucky enough to have access to a ton of media like Animaniacs and Wishbone and the Muppets and The Simpsons to help me learn these stories. And my mother would tell me these stories. She, like, I knew the ending of Hamlet and Oedipus before I ever saw either one. And what it meant was that when I was faced with the language and the symbolism and all the shit that they really want you to focus on in high school, I already had an understanding and love of the stories. 
And the reason that I'm really excited about Shaky Shaking Friends and what we do is trying to bring the story to people before it's ruined for them by education. <laughs> and frankly, PBS's Wishbone did a better job of this than anything I've ever seen. They did a Joan of Arc episode where fucking Joan of Arc burned at the end of the episode. They just burned Joan of Arc. And granted, Wishbone wasn't Joan of Arc, but it meant that when I watched that story, I didn't have some weird half-assed kids version, which I think a lot of kids hate that. As a kid, I was never upset by death. I understood, like, I mean, death is scary and upsetting. But in media, I was always like, okay, that person's dead. I get that. When I was playing, you know, superheroes with my friends, we'd die all the time, stick our tongue out and close our eyes. We're dead. Kids have a much better understanding of death, I think, than parents give them credit for. So as a result, I always felt cheated when death was removed from stories, when they were sterilized. As a kid, I could notice that, and it bothered me. So our goal is to deliver the proper version of Shakespeare stories to kids before they have to deal with the language or the symbolism or anything else. You just be like, look, here's a fascinating story that has fascinated people for 400 years, and you're going to like it because it's neat. And to that effect, uh, our basic model is based on the uh, Muppet Christmas Carol, Muppet Treasure Island model of we have puppet characters who are playing the characters in the play. So in using Muppet terms, if Kermit is playing Hamlet and Hamlet dies, Kermit's still alive, so we can deal with that. Because uh, as far as I know, or this is what I remember as a kid and what we've experienced so far, is that if kids don't care if you kill a character off, what they do care about is if everything's super sad and bleak. That bothers them. It bothers us, but we're all jaded and most modern, <laughs> so we're used to it. And we have booze, so we can deal with it. But for a kid, they they don't mind the death, but they, they want to be able to take it away and process it on their own. So our goal is to present you with the story... Uh, our first one was Romeo and Juliet. We killed Romeo and Juliet at the end, but the characters playing them, uh, Len, the puppet who plays Romeo, was like, wait, Romeo dies? That's awesome! Kids think death is kind of neat. Particularly little boys are like, yeah! So our goal is, again, to just bring these stories as written to kids so that they don't grow up having to be like, oh, my first experience with Shakespeare was when my idiot friend Tim was speaking the speech trippingly off the tongue, and it was awful. So, anyway, that's what we're doing, and uh, so far, so good. So, thus far, you guys have covered Romeo and Juliet. Yes. And The Tempest. Yeah. And this time around, Midsummer Night's Dream. Dream. yes. The company of puppets grew a bit between uh, the first and second yes. edition. Has that trend continued? Indeed. So, my deal is, uh, as a kid growing up, I always had, uh, I'm to this day, I love continuity. And it's always bothered me when there isn't continuity. Uh, my favorite example of this was the great children's show Recess, Disney's Recess, which started out as a really dark and kind of strange show. Eventually got a little bit whitewashed, but for a while there, it was dark and gritty and strange. And um, there was an episode in it where they brought up the fact that one of the characters was in love with one of the other characters. And even as a kid, I was like, look, I get that they're, they're, they're in the same grade I am in school. Like, we're all young. Obviously, we're not going to have a grand epic romance, but that's a detail. That exists now. That's a thing. So I'm going to watch for that in every single episode I watch after that. Mm -hmm. uh, my first breakup was Power Rangers. When Kimberly dumped Tommy, I was very distraught. But it's because I care about continuity. So my deal was, the reason that we still care about the Muppets, the reason that you can revive the Muppets now, because they were gone for a long time. They After Disney bought them out, they just... Henson had died, his son was running it for a bit, but Disney was being very, very... 90s Disney about how the Muppets worked. So they were being pimped out to all these really shitty, there was a really lame Wizard of Oz and just a bunch of lazy productions coming out of the Muppets. But we care about those characters. And so when I built my own, I was like, okay, well, in order to make the deaths of Shakespearean characters okay, we need to have characters that we care enough about that when they survive, we're, we're happy. 
So it started in Romeo and Juliet with just building a base cast of like, there's Shaky Shake, who's Shakespeare, who's telling the story. I, I built the entire model off of Troy McClure and Little Billy uh, from The Simpsons, where it's like, oh, tell me about DNA, Mr. McClure. So Shaky Shake telling the story to his little friend Zip. And uh, Romeo and Juliet started with Zip being really bummed about not having a good romance story. He was reading Twilight, and he's like, I hate this. And Shaky Shake's like, oh, I've got a story for you, and off it went. But all these characters came to have personalities, and I wanted to continue those. So every play is a sequel, and actually I feel very honored. It's rare that anywhere in theater and in life you get to write a series with continuing characters. So even though each play is a different Shakespeare piece, the Shaky Shake and Friends narrative has been consistent from day one through. So at the end of Romeo and Juliet, the two characters playing Romeo and Juliet, I mean, Romeo and Juliet die, but Len and Lucy, who are playing them, end up in a relationship. So at the end of the play, they're like, oh, well, it's really sad that Romeo and Juliet died, but look, Len and Lucy are in a relationship. That's great. That carries over into A Tempest, The Tempest. And then it also carries over into Midsummer Night's Dream, where we introduce more new characters, and all these characters have a continuing narrative, which I know for some kids won't matter. And the balance for me as a writer is making sure that the characters that I've created that I'm interested in don't overshadow the story of what's actually going on in the Shakespeare piece. Right. But that being said, we had uh, we have a girl who we've dubbed our number one fan. We gave her a signed poster last year, which blew her mind. She showed up with a Shakespeare action figure. And we ran into her mom uh, last year when we were teching, and she's like, hey, my daughter loves this stuff. After she saw Romeo and Juliet, she went home. She read Shakespeare for the first time. She loves it. Shakespeare's now one of her favorite writers. She talks about it all the time. She's <laughs> so excited to see The Tempest. And... For that girl, these characters need to continue. They need to be, it needs to be continuous narrative. And so my goal as a writer and, and as a theater creator in general is that if you come in raw on a Midsummer Night's Dream, you're still going to see a very good Midsummer Night's Dream. There can be some jokes that are lost on you that reference previous things that have happened, but we try and make everything very clear. Here's who all of these archetypes are. Here's who they are as people or puppets, I suppose. Here they are as Shakespeare characters. But you can come in having seen none of the previous plays and still see a fun, accessible version of Midsummer Night's Dream. However, if you have seen the other two, there's a ton of embedded jokes that are in there for you. And if you really know them, there are jokes that I write just for the cast. Because since I'm a continuity nut, I write things into the script that are like, uh, in, for instance, in Midsummer Night's Dream, there are several characters who mimic lines, they just deliver lines from The Tempest. But it's inverted. So, for instance, uh, one of our running gags is that the the swear word for our company is cinnamon and gravy, which I stole from uh, SNL's Gus Chiggins skit with Will Ferrell, where he's a grizzled old prospector. He's like, oh, cinnamon and gravy! So the running gag is that anytime any character needs to swear, they say cinnamon and gravy. And someone else will call them out on, like, whoa, language! Like, there are <laughs> children here! And what I've really enjoyed playing with is who gets to say that. So in the previous two scripts, every time it's someone different who says cinnamon and gravy and someone else is like, language! So the person who said cinnamon and gravy four times in The Tempest is the one who gets to say language when someone else says it in this one. And so on and so forth. And I love, particularly because I'm writing for the same actors, which is also a rare joy, I get to give them, like, you killed this line last time, so here it is again. On the first read, a lot of them fucked up those lines. I'm like, I... I just wrote the line that you were good at. <laughs> just say it that way again. So all I'm going to say, that's kind of where we come from in terms of the ongoing plot and where all these characters are going. And it is a very delicate balance. And I have several other Shakespeare plays that I'd like to do. The challenge for me is always not overplaying these characters in their storyline. Because I'm very invested in that. 
But I understand that any audience comes in, I always want to make sure that if this is your first play, you don't have a shitty time because you're watching the third movie in a cycle. And you're like, why is, wait, what, why is Gwyneth Paltrow mad at Iron Man? I don't understand. What's, what's going on here? What, what is an Avenger? <laughs> That's interesting because you're, you're bringing up, I, I never thought about it until, until now, this way that the, the shows really are shaky shake, the Shakespeare element. And Friends. Yep. And there is so much in that and Friends that it isn't just a Shakespeare show, which is which is cool. Well, in a lot of ways it's cool but problematic because uh, you watch Slings and Arrows at some point. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. yeah. I took Slings and Arrows as a major, weirdly, as a major start point for this whole thing. Because I love the idea of the Keanu Reeves-esque Hamlet who just wants to film actor his way through Hamlet. So when I was writing, and it's a classic example of getting actors that are better than the material. When I was writing Len, who plays Hamlet, I was writing him as that guy. That guy is just this clueless dude. And it's partially because the puppet we built has a leather jacket. Partially because we were like, shit, we can put a puppet on a leather jacket? We'll never find a leather jacket. That's a size. Oh, uh, by the way, for all of you puppet makers at home, size four children's wear is what all the puppets wear. And you get to be the creeper who stumbles through Value Village. <laughs> Digging through children's clothing for size fours and then taking it out and roughly putting it on your arm. You look fucking insane. Every time I do it, I think I'm going to go to jail. In any case, we're like, we'll never find a leather jacket this size or a smoking jacket for Shake and Shake this size ever again. So I was writing as that. And Wait a then, minute. They don't make size four children's smoking jackets? Not yet. Patent pending. <laughs> Tom McGee's size four smoking jackets. Uh, my uh, Stewie's sexy parties kind yeah. of thing, you know? It's called a sexy party. So I started writing him as that, and then when we cast Michael Mann, who, if you haven't seen him, you should, because he's just fucking incredible. He's one of those guys that you could literally give anything to. You could be like, I, I have a, a bag of random words. Please perform these in an interesting and engaging way, and you will. So he came in, and his Len is far more interesting and charming than the one I was writing. But that's when it really started to become clear that these characters were going to be their own things. And that I, I could write basic archetypes, but that the people I was hiring were good enough that they were just going to make them their own in a way that now I can't think of them without those actors. And actually, the most depressive I've ever been as a writer was uh, during The Tempest. We came off the high of R&J, and it was great, and everything was fantastic. So I'm like, ah, oh, I started writing The Tempest, completely forgetting that actors have other things they'd like to do as well. So I was writing it in everyone from Romeo and Juliet's voice. And then suddenly I was talking to people, and they're like, yeah, well, like, I'd like to be in it, but, you know, I need to see what else I'm going to do. And I just had this horrible moment where I was like, oh, my God, if these people aren't voicing these characters, what am I going to do? And, I mean, as a writer, it was a good moment to have because you can't you, you can't write for a specific person. It's a terrible idea. You were working in that Shakespearean mold of the, the company of actors yes, that I was you like, were writing for. Hey, Burbage, here's one for you. <laughs> and I was lucky enough on Midsummer Night's Dream that I'd already got all of them signed back on before I started writing. So when I when I actually started writing, I was able to just be like, okay, this is your voice. This is who you are as an actor. I'm just gonna write it. I'm just I'm gonna it went from baseball to T ball. It's like I'm just I'm planting a stick in the ground. You just hit this ball off of. You're gonna nail it. But it was really because these actors were so good at bringing life to their puppets. And frankly, two of them keep their puppets when they aren't doing the show. One of them is technically the roommate of a friend of mine. She talks to her puppet all the time. It's very strange because, I mean, technically I still own these puppets, but they don't live at my house. <laughs> so that's when I really started to realize that these these actors had made these characters their own. And uh, it's a little bit like mask work. Wherein when, you, when a lot of actors create a mask or a clown, they put a lot of themselves into their mask or a clown. And 
people had started to layer their own personality onto their puppets to the point that there are, I'd say about 50% of the puppets in our company, we will be happy to pass to people at a bar. 50% of them cannot be passed to people at a bar because they get furious about like, no, no, that's not how this character talks. That's not what they do. It's, it's almost a sexual violation thing. They're like, keep your fucking hands off my puppet, which is awesome. It's a great. There's an ownership there. Yeah, yeah sure. there's an ownership, but there's also a character identification and a right. personal identification with that puppet, which means when you see I guess them, I meant ownership beyond just... Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, exactly. So when you see them in performance, you're like, oh, goddamn. And in fact, Shira, who plays Lucy, her puppet weirdly has the same hair she does. And there was... I remember I was on stage during uh, Romeo and Juliet. I was playing Tybalt, who just goes, roar, all the time. And I was looking at her, and her fucking puppet's hair... She was holding the puppet right next to her face. And her hair and the puppet's hair were curled the same way, were the same color. And I just had this horrible moment where I couldn't tell where one of their hair ended <laughs> and the other one began. And it was both the best and worst moment in the world because I was like, ah, a human puppet. So anyway, that's kind of why these stories have developed and why the Shaky Shaken Friends cast and characters have become something separate from the Shakespeare plays. And as I say, I'm always fighting that because I love those characters. So I recently started drafting ideas. I have three more Shakespeare plays I'd like to do. And I started drafting ideas for how those would go. And everyone starts with a, oh, here's the entry point. So with Romeo and Juliet, I was coming home one night. I was having a hard time writing it. Came home one night. I'd been out with some friends. And I was like, wait a minute. It's Twilight. It's that someone is sick of hearing about shirtless werewolves and whiny vampires. And that's how Romeo and Juliet starts. But the Tempest originally was going to be like on Toronto Island. They get stranded. But then Harry Potter ended. And I was like, oh shit. It's that there are no more Harry Potter movies. So they need a wizard play. Eh, the Tempest. Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, I'm getting married next year. So suddenly I started thinking about marriage a lot. And I was like, oh shit. Well, what if Shakespeare's getting married? So they decide to perform a Midsummer Night's Dream as his wedding gift. And so the wedding sequence, rather than doing Pyramus and Thisbe in the proper ending of Midsummer's Dream is Shaky Shake's wedding and a bunch of hijinks happen. It might be a musical number. Um, <laughs> and so I always think about those those terms, but it's weird because I started to write one of the future plays I'd like to do, and I was I wrote this great intro for the Shake Shake and Friends characters, but it took ten pages. And I was like, I have forty pages to tell a very complex Shakespeare story, and I've wasted ten of them indulging myself. So I just cut it all, deleted it all, it was horrifying. Because that's the natural progression of where those characters go. But I was like, look, if you just come to this play, you want to see the Shakespeare story. Right. If Now, if you've been following Shake Shake and Friends forever, yeah, great. I've got some awesome shit for you. But if you're just someone it's saying, some standalone like, humor. oh, here's my favorite Shakespeare play with puppets. I want to go see this. I realized I wasn't being true to that. So the new version kills, like, all of the character stuff is there. It's very subtle and it's buried under the actual Shakespeare play. So anyway, it's a weird, it's a weird way to work, but I dig it. I'm always really aware of who... Like you were saying, one's audience and whatnot. And we're talking about a kid's friend show, and you've probably dropped more F-bombs than I've ever had in an interview. Yeah, I'm sorry. I meant to ask you earlier if swearing was okay, but then I just decided swearing. to fuck it. Swear, well, there you go. On. Swearing is okay, but I'm just kind of like, if people are listening to this being like, oh, here's this kid's friend show, I wonder if I should listen well, to this Marty, preview so I, I made, a, I made a, a conscious decision coming into this that I was going to... We are we are a foul-mouthed company. I mean, at the end of the day, we're a bunch of uh, theater professionals, and we have a great time. We always bring the puppets to the tent. We had one um, Best of Fringe juror hate us for that. But at the end of the day, we're, we're theater people. We're theater people like any other theater people. We cuss and we drink and we have a great time. We also do children's theater. 
um, children's performers are performers like anyone else. And what's funny is it always filters down over generations. So it's like the first time you hear that Sharon Lewis and Bram swear. But yes, no, we 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 swear a lot. Uh, we are, but not in the show. No, not at all. And it's <laughs> it's a challenge because literally the second our audience is in house, we have to put on filters that are like, no, now we're we're basically in performance mode from the second children arrive, and then also on the back end. I mean, we go out and hang out with the kids with the puppets. We made the mistake of trying to do that in theater the first time, and French was like the fuck are you doing get out of here we have another show coming in in like two minutes and we're like oh god we made the mistake of bringing it because every kid stayed because we brought the puppets out they're just like we're gonna stay in the theater and we're like no no get out get out get out get out so now we go outside every kid has some weird fascination with putting their hand in the muppet's mouth it's all they really want to do for some reason it's very strange but that's just the thing but yeah it literally means there's just a chunk of our day where we can't swear (laughs) and then we go to the tent and swear a lot and if and, I mean, I, I respect the children's performers who keep their public persona in place. It's, uh, it's it's a skill that I don't have, but I respect greatly, where when you're in public, you are still the children's performer. We aren't. When we get to the tent, we're the drunk guys with puppets. But that being said, I write every play for people like me, for our age, in the same way that the Muppets are written for kids and adults. And I still love watching puppets. I still love watching children's stuff when it's written for me. And so... I don't want to cut off that end of it, but it does mean we have a weird kind of dual life going, where with kids, we're like, oh, yeah, we're shake, shake, we're great. And then gets in the tent, we're like, yeah, fucking blarg. So is there uh, is there an adult uh, fringe application in the future for Shaky Shake and Friends? Uh, yes. So my, my model for that is Moro and Jasp, who, aside from just being fucking stupid, brilliant and everything forever, they started out as a children's show and then gradually became an adult show. And what I'm realizing is that I'm writing the kind of children's theater that as a kid, I respected and liked. I'm realizing that's a bit of an issue, and it's at odds with a lot of children's theaters happening. Uh, not everything. I mean, Theater Direct, who works at the Witchwood Barns, one of their most successful shows of late is Bindi's Journey, which is about a girl with AIDS. And it's it's for kids, but it's a very adult show for kids. And it, they have one of the best philosophies I've ever seen in a children's company, where they're just like, look, they aren't kids' audiences. They're audiences. They happen to be younger but they're an audience. Treat them like people. And I believe in that wholeheartedly. That being said, there is a lot of pushback to that. I have this weird duality going on in my brain where, like, I don't write for kids. I write for me. But I always remember what I liked as as a kid. So I was a huge Star Wars nut, and it always bothered me that the new films had robots rather than humans. Because I remember as a kid, the opening sequence of A New Hope, where, like, Stormtroopers rebels shoot it out, an amazing scene... But then you watch Stormtroopers literally kick their dead friends out of the way so Vader can walk a straight line. This is viewed as one of the great children's films of all time. But there's a scene where people have to kick their dead friends out of the way so their boss can walk a straight line. That was amazing. I, As a kid, I was like, yeah, I get it. I get life and death. That's amazing. I'm, I'm on board. So I have this issue wherein I'm always going to write for me and I'm always going to write for my friends. There's a, there's a, there's a ton of death of salesman jokes in Midsummer Night's Dream. I always write in jokes that are above children's heads. I've taken flack for it. I had a parent very nicely email me being like, hey, you should include more Shakespeare. You don't need to include these quotes about Justin Bieber and stuff. Like, kids are smarter than you give them credit for. And it really hurt me because I was like, no, I know kids are smart. Shakespeare isn't the most accessible language in the world. I dig it. A lot of my friends dig it. I know you dig it. That's great. But there are certain plays that are more archaic than others. So, for instance, Romeo and Juliet and The Tempest. Uh, Tempest was written at the end of his career, but there's so many fucking weird subplots in that that a lot of the dialogue in that play is wasted on these shitty, weird subplots that no one gives a shit about. 
Iron Jade was early in his career. It's one of the most archaic reading plays. And yes, there's moments of great beauty. And in our version, we kept those. But what we didn't keep was like, yeah, I'm taking her Maidenhead. I'm going to fuck this girl. As a kid, I wouldn't have understood what Maidenhead is. As an adult, I do understand what Maidenhead is. In either case, it doesn't need to be in that play. But what it means is that we end up doing pantos of a lot of these plays. Midsummer Night's Dream is actually the one that has the most Shakespeare in it. The next one I'm working on has very little. Uh, Tempest had very little. RNJ had very little. And it's not because I don't think kids... I think kids love the poetry. I love the poetry. But the fact of the matter is, someone is going to take a drill and drill the poetry into their head later. I'd rather that they understand the story before they get to that. So that when someone's like... Tell me the imagery of RNG. You're not like, I hate everything about this play. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I get it. It's about two people who fell in love with, they were super young, shit got real, blarg. Yeah, there's a lot of weirdness involved in picking the language and picking what you keep and discard, but I'd love to do an adult version. And I, so my, my end game, the uh, producers of uh, Game of Thrones always said that the Red Wedding would be their end game. If they could just get to that point, they would have won. And they did. They won in a huge way. And people are already talking about how that's... I'd love to do Macros as a children's play. And I already know how I would do it with the puppets. Uh, but the thing is, I'm already... After this one, the next one I'm writing is already pushing the boundaries pretty hard. And I suspect there might come a point where parents just say, fuck off, I don't want to... I'm not taking my kids this anymore. Which is fine. But at that point, I start writing the adult versions. For me, the great success will be doing Macros, even if it bombs horribly. Uh, and I'm getting to that point now where I have to start telling my actors that, like, my fucking schemey brain is like, ha, ha 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 do this thing that might get us banned from Fringe. But they're important stories, and they're stories the kids would dig and will hear about. And frankly, again, I want to get to these stories before someone just goes, oh yeah, well, uh, he dies at the end. Hamlet, everyone dies. Oedipus, yeah, well, fucking his mom is his sister, sort of, die. Like, I want to get there before you get the tweeted version of it, where it's 140 characters that just, like, oh yeah, Bruce Willis is a ghost. Well, all right. The most fucked up thing about all of this is that I never set out to try and do children's theater. I love kids. I loved being a kid. And I highly respect the experience I had as a kid and the experience kids have. But I know people like Theater Direct, like uh, Linda Hill or Theater Direct, who are just fucking all... They are so deep in kids' heads in the right way. Uh, at the end of every Theater Direct show, kids are allowed to vote on how much they enjoyed the show. And a lot of them do the classic, like, I loved it, I have to love it, right? But there are those kids that are like, no, no, I'm actually engaging in this. And what I find really funny about doing children's theater or even thinking about all this is that I don't write it for kids. I write it for me. I write it for me and my friends. And it's in children's theater. It's in a kid's fringe slot. And I, I'll fall on my sword about why this is valuable for kids. But I'm also writing it for adults. Because as a kid, I respected being given adult material. Because frankly, I could handle it better than the adults in the house. I used to watch 22 Minutes with my parents. And I'd have to be like, who's Sheila Copps? Tell me why this is funny that she's giving everyone flags. I wrote a political satire when I was in grade 6. It bombed horribly. It made me no gas for another 5 years. But it was because as a kid, I got what was going on. I don't even know what question we're on, but goddamn, what a great <laughs> podcast! Oh, wow. It's funny, you know, because I've been doing a lot of these fringe episodes, and it's been business. I'm I'm looking forward to putting this episode up just because it's going to be nothing like my other episodes. I mean, we're going to talk a bit about your company, for sure, and people are going to learn a bit about your show. Really, though, this but, entire... 
this might be the wankiest thing I'll ever say in my life, but this entire conversation has been more about my show than anything I could have told you about. Like, here's the component, here's the script, here's the thing. This, this is all the shit that goes through my head when I'm writing or performing. And this is, as a, as a theater creator, this is at the heart of everything I do. I'm concerned with these things. And frankly, it's these conversations that I love. And these are the conversations that end up informing what these plays are. Whether they're for kids or adults. I write adult plays too. It's just... Theater's about people and ideas and confusion and strangeness. And I wrote about the things that I dig and that fuck my brain up a bit. And even when I'm writing children's theater, the things that fuck my brain up. Like, uh, both, both The Tempest and Midsummer Night's Dream have a lot of magic in them. And I love just throwing out shit like, I'm invisible now! Because as a kid, I always found that hilarious. As an adult, I find that hilarious. It's, it's bullshit, but great bullshit. I love when I listen to a company that's like, here, I have a very clear reason why I'm doing this. For me, all this muddiness and messiness lives in my brain when I'm writing children's shows, adult shows, when I'm dramaturging brouhaha shows, when I'm doing anything. And it's delightful to get to actually talk about it because it this is more me than what comes across in a lot of stuff. So thank you, Marty, for <laughs> opening Pandora's box. Hope is left. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I never... The thing about that is I never understood because some people were like... Hope was kept in the box, so then I'm like, hope isn't there? But then people are like, no, but hope was also in the box, and that's why we have hope in spite ah, of these see, things? The most interesting interpretation I've ever heard, which is the one I came up with, but a lot of people agree with it, is that um, Spendor's box is a, a box full of everything that's horrible and terrible and scary in the world, right? So open the box, and everything flies out, and hope is balancing on the lip. Now, the optimist version of that is, oh, don't worry, there's still hope. But if you really dissect the story, it's a box full of everything horrible in the universe. And hope is in that box. So what I find fascinating about it, which I, or I think is worthy of story, is that hope is the thing that bounces on the lip. And everyone's like, oh, don't worry, there's still hope. No, hope is one of those horrible things. Now, as an optimist in general in life, I love hoping for things. But I understand why hope would be viewed as one of those horrible things, where it's like, Hope is the thing that leads us to do stupid things that we know are futile. Hope is the thing that leads us to do to believe in things we know are going to fail. This is this is where I'm more of an optimist than you because I'm going to say that you wouldn't need hope if you didn't have those other things. So ah, but my argument it's the is only that... reason it's in the box. No, 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 it's no. not a horrible thing. Hope is a good thing, but it's in the box full of horrible things. So my argument because you wouldn't need it otherwise. Ah, but my if argument... everything was good, you wouldn't need hope. But my argument would be that hope is kind of what you make it, and that um, the reason that hope is in there is that sometimes hope is a bad thing. And the weird thing is that, like, again, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I love things, but there's a good hope and there's a bad hope. And what I really dig about that myth is that it leaves it enough open to interpretation that you can, however you want to skew life, you can skew it that way. But a lot of Greek myths are like that. And uh, those are on the way for Shaky Shaken, friends. Because uh, I'm running out of Shakespeare plays. I only have, I think I have about three more left in me. But uh, I love the idea that we we need to view hope with a grain of salt. Because it isn't... I'm always a hopeful person. I always think everything will get better. I know I had a nine-hour conversation with a pessimist last night. It was still a pleasant conversation. He was like, oh, yeah, we're fucked. I'm like, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean we should stop trying. Um, if I may. Please th do. There's a good hope 
And that hope, of course, is a new hope. And everything else just starts with a phantom menace. Tell it to Uncle Owen and Aunt Baru. A Midsummer Night's Dream, a puppet epic. It's at Kids Fringe. It's not just for kids. Uh, it's like a Muppet film. So if you enjoyed A Muppet Christmas Carol or A Muppet Treasure Island, come see the play. If you enjoyed A Muppet Wizard of Oz, don't come to my show because I hate you. Just hate you. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome, Marty. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have an upcoming Toronto-based performing arts project or production, I want to talk to you about it. Visit walkleft.ca.